Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing amazing. How are you? I'm doing really well, thanks. You had a uh, busy weekend. You had a birthday weekend. I did. Yeah. My oldest turned 12 this past week, and Whoa. we had, yes, a house full of boys all weekend. So yeah, we had a really good time, though. It was really fun. It's been a while since we've had um, any company or any like friends over or anything like that, like for the to spend the night and stuff. So yeah, so we had a really great time and it was a really good weekend. But yes, very busy and happy to be having a kind of a rest day today. I know here we are recording. This is like the earliest in the day I think we've ever recorded. Yeah, yeah. And it'll be interesting. Um, I don't know how much I am on my game. I didn't actually eat before this. So if you hear stomach growling noises, (laughs) there's a real reason. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So we're recording uh, really early in the morning. And that's not our usual. We usually are recording in the evenings when we're tired. So now we're all fresh and have just just risen. I don't know if there would be an ideal time where I'm like the most awake or the most fresh. I feel like I start off very poorly 
and end very poorly. <laughs> and in the middle, I'm just making it. I That's it. I just, you know, maybe we should be recording at noon. But even then, I'm like, I need to do things that like require my brain. Actually, this would be one of them. So maybe yeah. a noon, <laughs> noon scheduling would be good. I know some people hate to hear things like this, but um, I am a morning person. I know it's not for everyone, but I wake up at 6 a.m. every day and just get right going. I love it. And so like, I'm very happy in the morning. I find that like my um, energy really starts dragging kind of early in the day, though, around like two or three. And yeah. then um, I get like a second wind in the evenings. I'm kind of like a little bit of a night owl. But yeah, somehow yeah. I'm morning and night are my times in the afternoon. It's kind of like eh, for me. Yeah. So, yeah. I like getting up early and getting things done because it's quiet and my brain is working at the highest functioning. It probably will all day. So that I like that. But then sometimes I'm like, would I rather sleep or get up early? And normally I would rather sleep. I'm, I'm still learning. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Sleep is wonderful. I love to sleep too. Me too. <laughs> All right. So we'll get right into the episode this week. We have something very different. And by very different, I mean very, very old. Ooh, the shade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the events of this story actually took place over 100 years ago in the early 1900s. It is a fascinating case, but there was no internet back then. So researching this one was a little bit tricky. There just really aren't many sources available, so a lot of the detailed information in this episode came from a book called The Trial of Madame Caillou. And in keeping with last week's theme, we're staying in France again this week with a little piece of microhistory you've probably never heard about. But it was quite the big news when it happened in the summer of 1914, right before the world erupted in war, the war that we now call World War I. In fact, this story was such big news at the time that it even somewhat overshadowed the reports regarding France being mobilized for war. Many of the top news journals dedicated their front page stories to the trial of Madame Caillou rather than to the war at hand. So you're probably thinking with a name like Madame Caillou, which, by the way, is two letters off from being actual Caillou, the character that we all Freaking know Caillou. and hate um, <laughs> from cartoons. Um, but if you're thinking that Madame Caillou must have been someone really important to get all of this media attention, well, not exactly. She wasn't a particularly big deal, but her husband was. Henriette Caillou was Henriette Reynard before she married Joseph Caillou sometime around 1911 or 1912. The dates get a little sketchy, as we said, when you go right. back that far. It was Joseph who was more of a big deal than his wife was. And that's because he was a generally very disliked politician in France. You might think you know where this is going based on this introduction, but the story unfolds in a way that you might not actually expect. I even know what's going to happen next. And the way you just shared that intro, I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> So Joseph Caillou was really an eccentric and peculiar man, which is a very fun way to describe somebody that a lot of people really just didn't like. He was born in March of 1863 in France to his father, Eugene, who was a minister of finance, and his mother, Anna, who was a homemaker. Anna was really over the moon about her son, like in the way celebrities say they're over the moon about pregnancies and stuff. Yeah. It's the same, <laughs> same general thing. She really puts Joseph on this pedestal. She was very supportive of him, but it was really to the point where she instilled this sense of importance and superiority in him. As these traits grew in Joseph, Anna really encouraged them. Anna and Eugene, though, didn't really see eye to eye on parenting matters. Anna was very loving and warm and really spoiled Joseph with praise and attention constantly. 
really to his detriment. Eugene, on the other hand, was described as being more skeptical and harsh, cold, distant, and authoritarian. So Joseph's growing up in this household with two completely different types of parents and parenting styles. So Joseph was the first child born to Eugene and Anna, although Anna had a son and daughter from a previous marriage. Unfortunately, her first husband had passed away, leaving her widowed with two children before she met Eugene. The children were raised in the quote-unquote aristocratic tradition, which meant that they had English nurses and English governesses. So a governess, as far as we can tell, is basically like a nanny or an au pair. The role of a governess is to teach and care for other women's children. So they typically live with their employers and they receive a small salary on top of living there, you know, having free board and free lodging. So it follows that Joseph had a pretty privileged upbringing. Joseph was schooled through private tutors at home for his primary school years, and he ended up going to law school to get a degree in 1886. He also studied at this time finance while he was in college. As he got older, Joseph started to experience swings in his moods, and the book heavily asserts that it was likely that he had bipolar depression, although we have no source that actually clearly states that. Joseph's personality, as I said a little earlier, was pretty unlikable, to put it nicely. Although he had this ability to fascinate and to draw people in, he was really proud and arrogant and generally just a very hard person, you know, to get along with. No one would even really admit to liking this guy or being his friend. He is that guy. Everyone knows that guy. There's somebody. Absolutely. At least in high school. There was definitely definitely that guy in high school. Probably college. I didn't finish. Wouldn't know. So um, (laughs) (laughs) even the compliments, though, that he would receive from other people were rather backhanded. Uh, Later, a newspaper called Bonnet Rouge wrote a piece that appeared to be supportive of Joseph. But even this supportive piece said that he was, quote, a wonderful mind, but an awful person. Oh, no. It's terrible. Yeah. So one of Joseph's followers and students, Jean Montigny, said Joseph had a, quote, unclassifiable personality, end quote. He described him as a Jekyll and Hyde type who could go from being breezy and charming to being arrogant and angry and back to being good humored about it all within the same hour. Although he had his career in finance, he decided that what he really wanted to do was get into politics. He started by campaigning for town council, but it wasn't until 1896 that he was finally voted in. After that, he ran for the Chamber of Deputies. He was elected in 1898 and couldn't have been more full of himself over this. He referred to his constituents as my peasants and his district as my fife. So he is very just over the top thinking he's like the king of the world at this point. Right. Joseph served as Minister of France twice once from 1899 to 1902, and again from 1906 to 1909. And in 1911, he became the prime minister of France. Despite being generally known for being a jerk, somehow a married woman named Bertha saw something special in Joseph, something so special that for her, he was worth risking it all and having an affair. Bertha's husband wasn't just any old nobody. He was the aide of one of Joseph's colleagues on the Council of Ministries, so there was a pretty close and risky connection there. Eventually, Bertha and her husband divorced, and Joseph married her, but at that time, the public did not look fondly on the situation. The book said, quote, To marry a former mistress after her own divorce was hardly acceptable to the public opinion of 1906, end quote. 
and the marriage was far from idyllic anyway. Joseph cheated on her repeatedly and constantly flaunted other women, another thing that the public really looked down their noses at him for. People who held political office were expected to conduct themselves with restrained manners and a respectable private life, or at least the appearance of one. An attempt really should be made to cover up whatever it is that you're doing in your free time, but Joseph just flaunted his infidelity publicly as the prime minister, which is really just not a good look. One of these affairs was with Henriette Reynard, who he would later marry after Bertha divorced him in 1911. Joseph liked Henriette because he said that she was the opposite of his wife. Bertha allegedly always wanted the spotlight, and Joseph wasn't the sharing type when it came to his fame. He liked that Henriette was happy to be a quiet wife who stayed behind the scenes. What a nice guy. Yeah, I mean, everything everyone said about him so far just seems shocking when you hear things like this from him. (laughs) Right, exactly. So by the time Joseph married Henriette, he owned property and investments that were worth over 1.5 million francs. And I really, really tried to do the um, calculation, but there was a lot going on there. As best as I can tell, that would be over about seven and a half million US dollars today. But like I said, there was a lot of Googling and conversion and math to get there, especially because the French franc is no longer a currency. So I had to like not only convert it French francs to US dollars, but then I had to also go back to the inflation calculator and calculate back. It was very difficult. Yeah, so I think that's what it was about. Seven and a half million US dollars is what he had. So he was one of the most wealthy men in all of France at that time. And he later said that it was because his parents had left him 1.2 million francs. So when Joseph first entered the political arena, he did so as a Republican, but he soon flipped sides and joined the left, which made him a very vulnerable target. And you guys know on this show, we don't get into politics, so we're just giving you the information as it's out there. In 1912, he was forced out of office, is the quote that they're they had. Apparently, he upset the public greatly after he negotiated a settlement giving France a protectorate over Morocco in exchange for quote-unquote generous concessions to Germany in Central Africa. So people were really upset because they felt that Joseph was being too accommodating to Germany. So Joseph eventually resigns, but this was not the last of him. In October of 1913, he made waves again when he was elected president of the left. By the time he was married to Henriette, who, as we said, was really the type of woman who wanted nothing more than to dote on her husband. Henriette was also born and raised in France, and she was a self-entitled bourgeois. Bourgeois women are taught from a young age that they are to take care of their husbands and kids and to fully devote themselves to their husband's well-being. Keep in mind, we're reading these, we're getting definitions, and this is all going to be very, like, this is the... The standard doesn't mean everyone followed this, but this is kind of the way they would define it. Right. And also, I have no idea what life was like in 1914. None of us do. So this is all we have, you know, is what the information is out there historically is what this is how it was. Basically, we're doing our best. So she's raised in this small town outside of Paris, and Joseph describes her as being too sheltered and too feminine to handle his political career. She was described by one of her longtime friends as being sweet, simple, loving, and incapable of rebellion, which I thought was a really interesting way to describe someone. Henriette did not attend secondary school, and she never worked outside the home at any point. At the age of 19, she married Leo Claridi because it was really expected that she would get married at a very young age. 
She had two children with him, but sadly, one of them died in 1908 at the age of nine. After being together 14 years with Leo, she requested a divorce. And so when she asked for this divorce, it was after she'd started this affair with Joseph. So he was like, okay, that's fine. Let's let's get a divorce. So according to Henriette, the couple had this fantastic marriage and she said their lives were completely happy, which as you know, on Moms of Murder, if we say that, <laughs> something's coming next. And we'll get into that right after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I'm inching closer to 40, and by that I mean I am being dragged there, kicking and screaming. While there is still some sick part of me that thinks people will be surprised that I'm almost 38 years old, my skin really gives me away. I've reached the age now where I'm getting those fine lines around my eyes and dark spots on my forehead. But now, thanks to agency, I can take care of my mature skin in a way that's actually designed especially for me. To get started, I simply went to the agency's site and uploaded photos of my face and told them a little about my concerns. My skin has been a lot drier in recent years, and I'm noticing more and more of those thin lines creeping up. After that, agency matched me with a licensed dermatology provider who created a custom formula that contains research-backed ingredients. But what I really love about agency is the relationship with your licensed dermatology provider doesn't end there. They actually check in with you to make sure you're happy with your formula. After my first round, I felt that my skin was still a little dry, so when my licensed dermatology provider checked in, I mentioned it, and she actually added pro-vitamin B5 to my next shipment to help soothe and hydrate my skin, and it did just that. Do what I did and try out Agency, the personalized anti-aging skincare that evolves with you. Go to withagency.com moms for a free 30-day trial. Just pay $4.95 for shipping and handling. That's withagency.com slash moms to unlock your free 30-day trial. See withagency.com for all the details, subject to consultation. There's never been a better time to take care of yourself than now. Whether something in your life is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, the licensed professional therapists with BetterHelp want to help you become the best you this year. BetterHelp is professional counseling that you can do right from the comfort of your home through weekly video or phone sessions. I've used BetterHelp for almost two years, and I can't tell you what a relief it is just to get all my thoughts out to a professional without ever having to leave the house. I deal with anxiety and depression and have most of my adult life, so just having someone I can talk through with those scenarios or those immediate big problems that pop up in life has really been invaluable, especially this last year. Of course, anything you share with your BetterHelp counselor is completely confidential. And best of all, BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is also available. Whether you're struggling with family issues, sleep, stress, or more, BetterHelp will match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating with them in under 24 hours. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com moms. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Alrighty. So before the break, we were talking about a very, let's not say very old. I guess 100 years is very old. It's over 100 years old. The story of Joseph Caillou and his wife, Henriette. 
So we kind of got up to the point of the story where we described who Joseph was as a person and kind of who he was to France. He was this political figure and not a very well-liked one. Um, And so now we're up to the heart of the matter and the reason that we have brought you all here today. We're all here for true crime, right? Well, it all started in 1913 when a political feud between parties started after the president of France, Raymond Poincaré, supported legislation that would increase the required length of military duty in France from two to three years. Liberal politicians, including Joseph, opposed this new legislation, but in August of that year, it passed anyway. After the new law passed, Joseph couldn't let it go, and he continued to attack the issue. He became a real thorn in their sides, and the, quote, center-right forces were scared that if Joseph was put back into power, he would appeal the new legislation. And it turns out they were right to be worried about that. Joseph did overthrow the center-right government a few months later, and he returned to his position as Minister of Finance. Other politicians worried he would appeal their legislation, so Joseph ended up with a giant target on his back. He became the most hated man in France. In order to keep Joseph from returning to power, a conservative named Gaston Calmet launched a massive smear campaign against Joseph. In January of 1914, Gaston wrote four different articles insinuating that during his time as prime minister, Joseph, quote, made a secret deal with Germany to end the Agadir crisis, France's diplomatic dispute with Germany that had almost triggered a war over Morocco, end quote. In a nutshell, the deal he made was that France would give up their portion of the Congo in exchange for Germany to not interfere in Morocco. Joseph felt this was the best way to avoid a war that France couldn't win. This was considered treasonous, however. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs and many press members were mad that Joseph gave away France's portion of the Congo. Gaston Calmet wrote that Joseph was involved with the Germans for the entire Agadir crisis, not just for this one secret meeting. He also said that he would publicize three intercepted wire communications supposedly showing Joseph's sympathy to Germany from 1911. This threat to publish intercepted wire communications got the attention of the German government, though. They really weren't too thrilled to hear that their official correspondence had been intercepted at all. So Joseph went to the president of France and asked him to stop Gaston from sharing these documents. President Poincaré agreed, and he released a statement saying that the German cables did not exist. Gaston also published other articles saying that Joseph did other inappropriate things, such as extorting 400,000 francs from French banks, funneling government money into his own political coffers, illegally listing foreign stocks on the Paris exchange, and then making a fortune on them. And according to the book that we mentioned in the beginning, None of those things were actually true, but these are the things that Gaston is printing in his big smear campaign against Joseph. However, Gaston's attempts to slander Joseph really were not that successful. The public didn't turn against Joseph for these reasons. As we said, he's not a likable guy, but for whatever reason, these new allegations coming out didn't seem to, they didn't cause any additional, um, you know, hatred towards him from the public. So because the public didn't really turn against him for these reasons and the other politicians didn't ask him to resign, Gaston decided that he would have to step up his game if he was really going to get anywhere with this. He decided to go personal and kind of make some low blows, and he was going to share love letters between Joseph and Henriette from the time when Joseph was still married to Bertha. 
From December 10, 1913 to March 1914, Gaston printed 138 articles and cartoons that were aimed at discrediting Joseph's personal and political life. This really wasn't even typical behavior of Gaston, so we can assume that he just really, really did not like Joseph. Yeah. Gaston was another French native. His father was a civil servant or a provincial bureaucrat, and his mother died when Gaston was just a young child. He had two brothers, and they were all raised with a modest upbringing. He got married in 1896 and pursued a career in journalism. Gaston was a really good-natured man who was agreeable and very attentive. He was known for his professionalism, his good manners, his courtesy, and for being a gentle person, although he had no problem standing up and getting the job done when he felt a responsibility to something. Gaston attended a military officer's training school and later studied law before joining the staff at a conservative newspaper called Le Figaro in the early 1800s. In a few years' time, he worked his way up to being the managing editor, and by 1902, he was the editor-in-chief. At the height of his career and at the time of our story, Gaston was known as the most powerful journalist in France. So Gaston wasn't just some nobody who was writing and releasing these things about Joseph Caillou. He actually did have some pull when it came to the public, and that was obviously not going to be any good for Joseph. So things take a turn for the worst in March of 1914, after the newspaper printed an issue with a copy of an old letter that Joseph had wrote to Bertha. And at this time that this letter was written, she was still married. The letter is 13 years old at this point, so it was really dug up from the depths. In this letter, Joseph wrote that he had, quote, crushed the income tax bill while appearing to defend it, thereby pleasing the center and the right without much upsetting to the left, end quote. So the letter was signed Tanjo, which is an affectionate way to close a letter. This closing leads people to believe that Joseph was having an affair with Bertha at the time, which brings his morality into question. But he wasn't just bragging to any random person about crushing this income tax bill. He was actually bragging about it to his mistress. So when the public read about this in the newspaper, there was outrage. Joseph's constituents turned on him and he became known as a hypocrite and a ruthless politician. It's kind of interesting to note here, but in the era we're talking about today, there was sort of an unspoken code that a political leader could have a mistress, and it was almost expected, but the condition was that he couldn't appear with her in public. But Joseph, as we said, liked to flaunt the women he was with, so this was always, always an issue for him. He really openly displayed his infidelity. So Joseph and his wife Henriette kind of started panicking a bit because, of course... Their relationship was also born out of an affair that Joseph was having while married to Bertha. So they're thinking, oh my gosh, if these letters are coming out, what happens when our letters come out? Right. So they're concerned, of course, that Gaston's going to publish theirs as well. So Henriette was very upset when she learned that she couldn't even sue Gaston for libel as he was a public figure after he had published these letters. So because she couldn't sue Gaston, she came up with a different plan. She wanted to kill him. Henriette purchased a Browning revolver and set her plan into motion. On March 16, 1914, Joseph has a meeting with President Poincare. At this meeting, Joseph seems to be very upset, and he talks about these letters that Gaston Calmet was threatening to publish. At one point, Joseph stands up and loudly exclaims that if Gaston dares to publish one more of his letters, he would kill him. 
always great to screen these things in a right? public forum. Especially to the president of the country. The president. Like, yeah. <laughs> Probably not the right person to say that in front exactly. of. Exactly. So you don't say the quiet things out loud. Right. So <laughs> this outburst was so jarring that the president told the prime minister about it. I'm sure he did. I'm sure lots of people were talked to about this after it happened. So after this meeting with the president, Henriette and Joseph went to lunch together and they talk more about these letters. And Joseph tells his wife that he would, quote, smash Gaston's face in, end quote. So you can kind of see what's going on here. <laughs> they are not happy. And around three in the afternoon, Henriette goes to a gun store and she tells them she's looking for a small weapon to take with her on an upcoming trip. Henriette tests out the 32 caliber Smith & Wesson, but she switched to the Browning after she couldn't figure out how to properly operate the Smith & Wesson. When it came to the revolver, though, she had no problem firing it at the range. The clerk shows her how to load and unload the gun and then sends her on her way with the gun fully loaded. So the clerk later said that during this transaction, Henriette was very calm and very collected. Wow. So Henriette was eager to carry out her plan, and she wasted no time once she had the gun in hand. It was later on the evening of March 16th that Henriette wrote a letter to her husband that said, quote, I realized that your decision to fight Calmette was irrevocable, and so I decided to take my own steps. I am the one who will do justice. France and the Republic need you. I am the one who will commit the act, end quote. After writing this note, she got into a taxi and headed for the Le Figaro offices. It was about 6 p.m. when she arrived wearing a fur coat over a gown with a large furry muff linking the two coat sleeves. I can kind of picture this outfit um, of the time. Right. So she waited for an hour before she actually could see Gaston. Gaston's last visitor for the day, who was a novelist named Paul, advised Gaston not to speak with Henriette. But Gaston said that it was fine and he couldn't turn away a woman. So Gaston went and got Henriette from the waiting area and walked her back to his office so they could talk. Once inside the office, Henriette asked Gaston if he knew why she was there, and he said, not at all, madame. And without any warning, Henriette then raised the gun, which she had hidden in her coat, and fired six shots, with four of them hitting Gaston. When other employees at the paper heard the gunshots, they came running into the office and grabbed Henriette to restrain her while she screamed, do not touch me, at them. Eventually, they did let her go, and she tried to explain why she had shot Gaston. She said, quote, because there is no longer any justice in France, end quote. In the aftermath of the shooting, some witnesses claimed that Henriette was extremely calm and indifferent and seemed detached from the reality of what she had done, but others alleged that she was whatever the opposite of calm is. One person said that she looked like a hunted animal with vacancy in her eyes. A doctor arrived on scene to try and help Gaston before he was taken away on a stretcher. It wasn't until later that night that Gaston took his last breath. He had wounds to his chest, side, and abdomen. Henriette, for some reason, had not left the scene yet when Gaston passed away, and so she was immediately arrested there. Wait, she's there the whole time he's been I taken guess away? So. Maybe oh, she was still talking word. to the police. I have no idea what she was still doing there, but they were able to arrest her immediately. 
She didn't go down quietly, though. She actually refused to get into the police car and insisted that her driver would take her to the police station. How does that driver feel? Like, <laughs> you just killed somebody and now you're going to ride in my car? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. And you're being okay. really pushy about this. Why yeah. do you want to ride in my car? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know. But for some reason, the officers agreed to let her do this and they just followed her car to the police station. So during the time that Henriette was committing the murder, her husband Joseph was sitting in on the Senate, so he didn't find out about it until after he left. Henriette told him that she hoped Gaston wasn't seriously hurt, and she just wanted to teach him a lesson. Gaston, as we said, had passed away, unfortunately. Gaston's funeral was held on March 20th. Almost immediately after the murder, Joseph resigned from his political position. And we still have more to get into with this story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. It's that time of year again. Time to start the back-to-school routine with our kids. An important part of that routine for all of us is making sure we get enough sleep. And thanks to my sleep number bed, sleeping is the easiest thing I'll do this year. While my kids don't get the value of a good night's sleep, it's something I literally daydream about. And Sleep Number makes my dream a reality. And even more than that, Sleep Number Bed allows you to take charge of your sleep with their custom settings. I like a softer bed, so I'm sleeping great at a Sleep Number 30, while on the other side of the bed, my husband likes his side a little firmer at a 40. And when you visit the Sleep Number store, not only do you get the VIP treatment, you get to try out all of their beds like you're in an updated version of The Princess and the Pea, except each bed is magical. I refer to my bed as simply my cloud bed because it feels just like sleeping on a fluffy cloud. I discovered that my perfect sleep number setting is a 30, just like Melissa, but occasionally I even go down to a 25 for an even softer, fluffier experience. And delivery of my sleep number bed was so easy. I was given a window for the delivery and the guys that came to deliver it even helped us move my old bed to my daughter's room. So they took the time to explain all the functions to me, including the snore button, where if my husband began snoring in the middle of the night, instead of pretending I accidentally kicked him, I can just push the snore button that raises his side of the bed up slightly and he doesn't even notice. But I do because it makes the snoring stop, which helps me get an amazing night's sleep and helps literally everything, including decreasing anxiety overnight by reorganizing connections in the brain. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Special offers now available for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com moms. Summer may be winding down, but we want to embrace the season for as long as we can. One way to do that is with a fun pair of Rothy's. Rothy's is the pair of shoes your wardrobe has been begging for. Not only are they cute and versatile, but after surveying thousands of Rothy's customers, the number one word used to describe Rothy's was comfy. Imagine a shoe that's actually comfy from the moment you put it on. That's the Rothy's magic. And it's not just us ladies that are loving Rothy's. Rothy's recently added a men's line with loafers and sneakers, as well as sandals in an array of colors. Combine that with the fact that the men's shoes, as well as all their products, are durable, washable, and better for the planet, and they'll even look great wash after wash. I've had my Rothy's tennis shoes in steel gray for almost three years, and I still wear them all the time. They are easy to slip on, and I feel like I'm walking on clouds. Plus, I can throw them in the washing machine whenever they need a refresh. They are my go-to shoes every time I leave the house, and that's honestly no exaggeration. They are the only pair of shoes that I keep near my front door because I know they are always going to be the ones I reach for first. Step up your summer wardrobe with washable, sustainable, stylish shoes and bags from Rothy's. 
Head to rothys.com slash moms to find your new warm weather favorites today. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash moms. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were imagining what this poor driver was going through when Henry asked <laughs> the driver to uh, to the jail. So as we said, she's taken into custody right there, and she's taken to a jail cell that was probably not as horrific as most jail cells. It was a very comfortable lodging situation where she got catered meals from one of the finest restaurants in Paris. Wow. Can you imagine? No. Henriette was facing murder charges, and it would only be a few months before she had to face them in court. On July 20th, the trial began, and Henriette took the stand for three hours, where she gave her testimony about how upsetting Gaston's smear campaign was to her and Joseph. She said she was mocked and insulted everywhere she went, and that people greeted her with ironic smiles and made her feel like she was being made fun of and made her feel ridiculous. She said that even her servants and tradesmen at home were malicious in telling her everything they heard through the grapevine about the couple. According to Henriette, Gaston stole her peace and her standing in society, which caused her to become anxious and distraught, even losing her ability to sleep at night. She alleged that she had even contemplated suicide over the possibility that Gaston would release private letters between herself and Joseph. She said, quote, to publish these letters or any part of them, would have been to lay out all that was most intimate to me, my most intimate secrets, the secrets I hold most dear and keep most hidden. It would have been to strip me of my honor as a woman, end quote. As we said before, she was raised as a bourgeois woman and affairs were strictly forbidden and she knew it would slander her character. Henriette claimed that she feared for herself, her husband, and her child and that no one could imagine what they went through. 
Oh, man. I know. It's feeling real terrible for this lady. So things get so bad that in March, whenever Henriette told Joseph how bothered she was, he said he'd smash in Gaston's face. Henriette feared that Joseph would kill Gaston himself and then get arrested, and obviously it would ruin his political career if he was arrested for murder. So she had come to the decision to kill Gaston herself so her husband didn't have to. But was that really her motive? Henriette never said anything to this effect, but it was rumored that she hoped that Joseph's political career would also be killed after Gaston was murdered. Some say that she was jealous of Joseph's career and that she knew that he'd have to resign if she, as his wife, murdered Gaston. The idea here was that he'd have more time for her, assuming, you know, that she gets away with it and she's not in jail getting catered meals all the time, that they would have to spend more time together after Gaston (laughs) is dead. Just, whoa. So according to Joseph, though, his wife actually begged him not to take another political position in 1913 because it was causing strain in their marriage. Hmm. So although Henriette did admit to shooting Gaston, she claimed that she only meant to scare him and not kill him. She said, quote, I shot Gaston Calmet because I knew he was going to publish in his newspapers the love letters that had been sent me by my husband before he had divorced his first wife. These letters had been stolen from Joseph by his wife who wanted to ruin me because her husband loved me, end quote. Henriette said nothing about the murder was premeditated and that she lost her head when she found herself in front of the man who had done so much harm to her and her family. She claimed that the gun went off accidentally. She said, quote, the bullets seemed to follow each other automatically, end quote. It was like having two separate beings inside myself, she said, like two separate wills. On the one hand, I wanted to go to an afternoon tea a friend had invited me to, and I put on a dressy dress. If I had planned to go to La Figaro to accomplish the deed that I accomplished, I wouldn't have dressed up. On the other hand, I felt a greater force take hold of me, and it was one that drove me. Wait, what? How many hands did she have in that story? (laughs) (laughs) Lots of on the other hands. My goodness. I know. Okay, so she claimed that her impulses that she was having were so strong that they just took a hold of her and she lost control of her actions and that her anxiety over the smear campaign allowed her nerves to have free reign over her bodily functions, pretty much. So she told the jury that she tried to stop herself at least once from hurting Gaston. She said she had a flash of consciousness as she was delivering the first shot that made her point the gun towards the ground. But unfortunately, Gaston's knee-jerk reaction was to drop to the floor, which put him right in the line of fire. I feel like that's definition of victim blaming. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I shot him and then apparently he went on the floor and I just kept shooting. Not my problem. Right. This woman... So according to prosecutors, both Henriette and Joseph believed that Gaston needed to die. They said that Henriette was just as good of a shot as Joseph was and that she didn't have a high profile position to lose, so she was the one to shoot Gaston. The prosecuting attorney, Charles Chenu, stated that the murder of Gaston had nothing to do with the letters and everything to do with Henriette wanting to silence a campaign of what he called political revelations that would show Joseph's true colors. Defense attorney Fernand Labori built a case for Henriette around the idea that this was a crime of passion. He wanted to show the jury that, hold on to your butts, he wanted to show (laughs) the jury that women were controlled by their passions, which would hopefully make her seem familiar and sympathetic. Oh my gosh. Like you get your period and you just start shooting people. I don't really (laughs) understand what that means. I don't either. (laughs) Yeah, I'd rather not. So he also used 
science, quote unquote science, to explain what happened within Henriette's mind that led her to commit this murder. He said that her nervous system and unconscious mind took over. According to the book that we referenced in the beginning, at this time that this happened, crimes of passion were considered excusable. It was believed that the crime of passion occurred, quote, when violent emotions triggered motor impulses arising from the unconscious, end quote. So attorney Labori asserted that Henriette was unconscious of her actions and suffering from what he called a mental disturbance at the time of the shooting. So during the trial, Henriette had two fainting spells. Uh, whether or not they were real is up for debate. I'm going to debate and say not real. <laughs> <laughs> the first time she fainted was during a reading of the love letters between herself and Joseph in open court. And the second time was during the prosecution's closing statements. Mandy, oh my gosh, what I love about this is that they were like, absolutely not. We cannot have these letters read. And then it would have been, you know, in the paper and people would have read it and maybe like went through and did the crossword puzzles, kind of, you know, barely paid attention. This is like an open court reading them uh, as like a soap opera, like so much worse. And you're on trial for murder. Yeah, it's yeah. Tough just stuff. Tough, <laughs> tough stuff indeed. So the jury has a couple of options as far as verdicts that they could reach. So she could be found guilty of murder, which carried a sentence of life in prison at a hard labor facility, or she could be given a death sentence. They could also find her guilty of murder with extenuating circumstances, which would mean a sentence of five years of hard labor, but it would spare her the death penalty. Or the jury could also find her not guilty at all. These are quite a range of things, like five years, death sentence, eh, you didn't do anything. Right. So on July 28th, after a week-long trial, the jury came to a shocking verdict in the case. Everyone ready for this? Henriette was found not guilty by a vote of 11 to 1 after just 50 minutes of deliberating. Oh my gosh. 11 to 1 shocks me. I love that that one person is like, I'm going to go down in history yeah. as being the one person yeah, who did not agree this. with this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So Henriette was stunned and she gives her attorney a hug, of course, while spectators are shouting things at her, which we don't have quotes from that, but I bet right. they were very nice. <laughs> and so she is allowed to leave freely. So newspapers from all around the globe reported on this trial. Parisian newspapers and press called it the trial of the century. And as we said before, they were so captivated by the whole thing that they really didn't even care about the fact that a war was just weeks away. It was front page news on all the major daily papers, which also love because they were just like us back then. We would have also been very enthralled with something, a story like this. Absolutely. Yeah. So not much has changed in that department. Um, People are still interested in the same things that they were in 1914. Crimes of passion were highly publicized and entertaining back then as well. Papers romanticized women who committed crimes of passion and treated them with indulgence. The trial itself was quite something. Opposing parties would yell at each other. Lawyers were yelling. There were issues with each side that, you know, they weren't sharing evidence with each other. Evidence was entered into the court at random times without the judge's approval. The audience was loud. And the papers were all writing about how Henriette was either guilty or innocent before the trial even ended. So it was just a real debacle, this whole thing. So after the trial, Henriette and Joseph stayed together, but they were treated horribly in the public for what they had done. Absolutely nobody liked them. But Henriette stuck by her man until the day he died. 
She left the courthouse right after her acquittal and went on to earn a diploma in 1933. She passed away on February 8, 1943. Before Joseph died, he was charged with treason for talking to Germany during the war. In December of 1917, his parliamentary immunity was removed, and in January of 1918, he was put in prison. His trial began in February of 1920, and he was found not guilty of the treason, but guilty of committing, quote, damage to the external security of the state, end quote. He was given three years, but his sentence was commuted, and he was released in 1920 as well. Interestingly, his civil rights were taken away for 10 years. I'm not sure what that entailed in 1914. I guess it's like the equivalent of being maybe on probation or parole, but um, I'm not really entirely sure what Hmm. having your civil rights taken away entailed back then. Um, So in April of 1925, after receiving amnesty, Joseph became the head of finance ministry and was later elected to the Senate as head of commission of finance, which is incredible to me that he was able to go back to politics after this. Why were people, why were he and his wife so obsessed with these letters when it's like literally you can kill somebody and still get into politics like what was amazing (laughs) wild it's baffling yeah it really is so uh joseph officially retired in 1940 and he died four years later on november 22nd 1944 what in the world that's what we have for this week yeah what a crazy story i've never heard a thing about any of this yeah me either um And I like these kind of things where it is like a little piece, like I said in the beginning of like micro history, because there's so much in history that's like you don't look back on like stories like this, you know, that it's like that was a a big story at the time. And you just kind of don't you don't talk about it anymore. But yeah, what a crazy story and a crazy case that I did not know about. No, absolutely. So for last thing before we go, we're kind of sticking with the hey, this was a long time ago thing. And uh, doing kind of a what things cost back then versus what they cost now. Mandy, I've looked up a few things. Would you like to play a little game with me? I would love to. Okay. So the it, this is from like the Farmer's Almanac. So the years I have are 1914 and 2018. I don't have 2021, but like the last couple of years have been crazy anyway. So yeah. let's just <laughs> – it's Perfect. better if we forget them anyway. Right. Okay. <laughs> so do you want to guess percentages things have increased or like how much you think something cost back then? I – let's guess how much they cost. Okay. So uh, in 2018, on average – a car cost $35,285. I don't know what cars people are buying, but that's what this says. So Mandy, what um, what do you think a car cost in 1914? I'm going to say $4,000. What? Do you want to try that again? <laughs> I am... Do you want to try again? No. Wait. Uh, why? Why? <laughs> Because an average car costs five hundred dollars in nineteen fourteen. Five hundred. Yeah. Five hundred. Okay. So I need to go way. I need to think. Yeah. You're gonna need to really. (laughs) Four thousand dollars was like a million dollars then. Okay. Let's. Yeah. 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 Smaller. (laughs) Yeah. I think my first car was less than four thousand dollars, and that was like in two thousand. Um. Okay. And that was definitely used. Um. That was an increase of almost seven thousand percent. Is that oh, wild in a yeah. hundred years? Okay, Guys, wow. this is economics. We're doing economics wow. today. Okay. And yes. I am not very good at it as we can see. <laughs> no, that's all right. Okay. 
2018, the average home cost $222,000. What do you think the average home cost in 1914? Okay, so if a car costs $500, I'm going to say you can get a really nice home for $1,500. Okay, now you're going the wrong way. No, you're fine. It's $3,500. Oh, okay. Well, I feel like, okay. I feel like you thought cars cost more than homes back then. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a 6,265% increase. Okay, Mandy, these are a little more fun. Okay, milk right now or in 2018 is $350, I'm sorry, $3.50. Nut milk is probably $350. Yeah. (laughs) $3.50. I'm going to say a nickel. Okay, I really like your positive thinking. It was um, 32 cents. Oh. The interesting thing to me is milk has increased less than a thousand percent. It's the lowest percentage of all these things. So like when we think milk is so expensive, it's like been the smallest thing to change in a hundred years. Yeah. Well, that really puts things into perspective. It does. (laughs) I will still complain. I will still complain. Okay. So bread uh, in in 2018 was $2. Oh gosh. Yeah. $2.50. Okay. I'm going to say 25 cents a loaf. Mandy, that's not bad. Go down a little bit. 20 cents. Okay, actually go down a lot. 10 cents. A little bit more. 15. Oh, down more? Yeah. What? Oh my, five cents. Up one. (laughs) Six cents? You nailed it. Six cents. Good job, Mandy. Nailed it. That increase is 4,066%. Whoa. Guys, Mandy used calculators for Franks. I use calculators for this. This is truly (laughs) the most educational episode we've ever had. All right, last one, Mandy. Gas in 2018 average was $2.90 a gallon. What was it in 1914? 15 cents a gallon. Oh, that is your closest one. It was 12 cents a gallon, a 2,316%. Yes. Oh, my goodness. That's a lot, though, of, of rising. It is. To me, the most wild thing is milk hasn't gone up that much. It was always expensive. Isn't that surprising? Yeah. Yeah. No, those are fun. That's crazy. I I think it's hilarious that I was thinking $500 for a car, though. No, no, no. You weren't thinking $500 for a car. I was thinking thinking $4,000 for a car. That's right. I do think it's funny. Um, I I don't know what I was thinking. Okay. So that was very enlightening. Good. This whole episode was enlightening. If nothing else, we have educated you all today and educated ourselves. Yes. And we have paid a nice visit to the lovely country of France in the last couple of weeks. Yes. And so we did not try to butcher the language any more than we had to with things at the end. (laughs) So you're welcome. Um, Before we go real quick, uh, Criminality, the other show I do has a new episode on Rachel Yucatel. You might know her through the Tiger Woods saga. It's a really fun episode. If you want to listen to that, it is out now. Awesome. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We will see you back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.